Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Dave, uh, our assistant minister this morning, told me that I preached for 30 minutes at the 8 o'clock service. So strap yourselves in. <laughs> on top of that, uh, I had a uh, Christmas uh, work event on Friday night, which included karaoke, and there were a lot of uh, 80s uh, power ballads, so my voice is just hanging in there, so... That combined with the 30 minutes. So I have, I have edited this down in the gap, so I'm hoping I'll sort of be closer to 20, 25 minutes. So let's see how we go. The Kangxi Emperor was in many ways one of China's most effective emperors. Reigning from 1661 to 1722, he established an extended period of stability, cultural development and wealth after many years of war and chaos. Uh, What is less well known was that he once famously disguised himself as a Han Chinese, he himself being Manchurian, so he was ethnically different, although he ruled over the Han Chinese. Dressed himself as a Han Chinese merchant to see if his rules were being enforced. As the story goes, the Kangxi emperor decided to test the guards assigned to the Great Wall to see if they'd let him into Manchuria. They had a policy of Han Chinese not being allowed to go into Manchuria to try and keep the Manchurian culture pure. So, going incognito, he dressed in the garb of Han Chinese. He attempted to cross the border, but after several attempts to persuade and bribe the guards, they hit him. Finally, they shoot him away. He was impressed, and uh, the emperor revealed his true identity as he wished to reward the diligent guards. Unfortunately, sort of classic Chinese stories, they were so shocked that they'd hit the emperor, they committed suicide. Just very Chinese, isn't it? We see parallels between the the Chinese emperor and Christ. The great king enters his land in the most unassuming manner, as a baby. And in the backwater of a Roman province, not even in the capital of Rome or even one of the local capitals, but in a backwater, even in that province. And even when he begins his adult ministry, he tells those he heals and his disciples not even to tell anybody who he is, even though they acknowledge it themselves. No one would have imagined that God incarnate came as a man. So let's look at the text before us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. He's equal with God, simple enough, but he comes in the form of a human being. Then he humbles himself by submitting to die on a cross. Why? Why does God come as a man? Why does he come as one of us? Why did he choose to reveal himself in this way? to communicate in this manner. He could have, and he's done it before, he could have simply opened the heavens open and spoken directly from heaven. He could have done it in a whole multitude of different ways, but he specifically chooses to speak in this way through becoming a human being. Soren Kierkegaard, great Danish theologian, tells this story. There was once a prince who wanted to find a maiden suitable to be his queen. One day, while running an errand in the local village for his father, he comes across a beautiful maiden. And as he glanced out the window, his eyes fall upon her. And in the ensuing days, as he goes past, he sees her again and again, and he falls in love. Seeing his beauty initially, he comes to fall in love as he observes her through her kindness as well. But he has a problem. How would he seek her hand? He could order her to marry him, that's his prerogative, but he wanted her to love him willingly, 
not through coercion. He could turn up in his most glorious splendour with a six-horse carriage, but he knew that she would be overwhelmed by his splendour. So the prince comes up with another solution. He would give up his kingly robe, moves into the village. He enters not with his crown, but with the garb of a peasant. He lives among the people, shares their interests and concerns. He talks their language. And in time, the maiden grew to love him for who he was and because he first loved her. You see it, don't you? God came down from heaven, entered our world, lived our life, shares our experiences. This is not abstract. It's not theoretical. He really and truly lived our experience, all the things that go with it. But if you think about it long enough, the sentences of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, they're actually actually mind-bending. Think about it. The, The transcendent creator, who is without any physical limits, actually doesn't even take on a physical form. He's not bound intellectually. He's not even bound by the laws of physics. He chooses to take on a creaturely appearance. He's now subject to gravity, getting a splinter in his hand. He eats, he drinks, he cries, he sleeps, even as a baby. He has to learn to live in the world, how to cook food, make a fire. He has to learn how to balance himself standing in a fishing boat. A couple of years ago, I was reading um, Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis. Almost like a whimsical side note, one of the chapters, Lewis asked this question. How would William Shakespeare meet Hamlet? Now, of course, Hamlet is fictional. But just to stay with the analogy, how how does William Shakespeare meet Hamlet? Lewis goes on. If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could initiate nothing. This really blew my mind at the time when I read it. It really transformed my thinking. And it's actually amazingly in the footnotes where he explains what he's getting at here. Shakespeare could, in principle, make himself appear as author within the play and write a dialogue between himself and Hamlet. Now, this gets really tricky. Listen to this. The Shakespeare within the play would, of course, be at once Shakespeare and one of Shakespeare's creatures. See what he's saying there? It would bear some analogy to incarnation. See what he's getting at? How does God meet humanity? How does he, the transcendent maker, Come to talk to them. God creates this world. He's the the narrator. He's written the story, but no longer is he the grand narrator off screen. He actually comes into the plot. He writes himself into the story. Not only does he do so, but he becomes the central character in that plot in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to live their lives, feel the same hopes, fears, aspirations. It's quite amazing when you think about it. That there is another reason why God came as a human being. One of the great church fathers, a guy called Gregory of Nazianzus, try and say that three times quickly, the Bishop of Constantinople in the fourth century made this very famous statement that which is not taken up is not healed. That which is not taken up is not healed. What, 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 is, what does he mean by this? To heal humanity 
God had to take on all of humanity. He had to take it all of us. He had to take on our physical presence. He had to take on our human will, our emotions, our desires. And he had to live that experience of being human. You see, it's only on taking on the human nature, taking it all up, is God in Christ able to properly take on the sin of humanity and deal with all of that brokenness. And note that this humanity, that Christ's humanity, doesn't end with his death. When Mary of Magdala met the risen Christ near the garden tomb, she actually mistook him for a gardener, a real gardener. In the tomb, there was a real garden and there was someone that had to attend to it. And she thought Christ was that person. He was a real physical person. But it was, in fact, Christ, wasn't it? The body of Jesus was as real after his resurrection as it was before his death. Though it was raised to another level, he was able to do some very unusual things like uh, go between walls and some very odd things. But at the same time, it was still physical. You see, in his humanity, Jesus was subjected to all the same kind of trials that we are. He is therefore able to sympathise. He knows what it's like to be human. He was tempted. He was persecuted. He was poor. He, was, uh, he suffered physical pain. He endured sorrow and he died. Only a human could experience these things. And only a human being could fully understand them through experience. Now, I suspect some of you, and I certainly tend to think this, think, look, Chris, let's face it, he's God as well. Surely his nature as being God allowed him kind of a a free pass in terms of getting his human nature to submit to all the trials and temptations, to live a perfect life. Now, it is true that we need to be careful in our application of Jesus into our lives. I know that sounds like a surprising thing to say. But Christ is our saviour. I'm not, I'm not your saviour, am I? We're not anybody else's saviour. So in that respect, Jesus is unique. But in terms of Jesus' humanity, we do have a legitimate role for, for godly living. Christ was totally human. So it's actually faulty thinking to think that uh, his uh, nature uh, being divine somehow gave him a free pass. That, that is not the case. In the Greek world, there were many characters. So Hercules is a very good example. Hercules had Zeus, who was a god, as a father, and he had a human mother. So he himself was part god, part man. But he wasn't actually fully god. He was a demigod. He was only half and half. It's like a mix. Christ is not like that. Christ is fully human and fully God. When he experiences the world as a human being, it is fully as a human being. So you don't want to fall into the category error of thinking he's a bit like Hercules. He's not Hercules. He is fully human when he experiences the human experience. So he doesn't get a free pass. He doesn't take on the divine nature and somehow kind of beat the odds through using that and cheating. Look at verse 7. He did not think of his equality as something to be exploited. 
and used to his advantage. Actually, think about it. At no point does he invoke his divine powers to subvert or even obstruct his opponents. There are occasions where he does use his divine power, I suspect, the calming of the, the sea, for example. But in this respect, in terms of dealing with his enemies, he operates completely on a human plane. No, no, no. He humbles himself. He actually puts his power aside. It's not that he gives up his divinity. That's who he is. He can't do that. But he, he just doesn't draw on it for the purposes of dealing with his enemies. So it is true that he is in control. But the incarnation, the, the entry of God into the human world, means that he also exposes himself to the world as a vulnerable human being. In uh, 1991, Jerry Sitzer, a professor in church history, was out with his family at uh, an Indian powwow, of all things. Uh, his wife homeschooled the kids, and as part of the curriculum, they had to do a, a cultural exploration. So she had had some contacts with the local Indians and had uh, teed this up to go out to an Indian powwow with the kids. Uh, Jerry Sitzer's mother came along as well, so she could spend some night with the, spend the evening with the kids as well. But by 8.15pm, the children had had enough. They got into the family van and they headed home. Turning a curve on the highway off the reserve, a car on the other side of the road took the curve too quickly, swerved into their car and uh, they had a head-on collision at high speed. Jerry's wife, his mother and his four-year-old daughter, Diane Jane, died before his eyes as he tried to pull them from the wreckage. He recounts that the initial terror and shock gave way in the hours and days that followed to unspeakable agony. Swirling with a kind of vertigo of grief, he describes feeling cut off from his family and friends, and he describes the initial deluge of loss, giving way over the next months to a steady seepage of pain, like floodwaters refusing to subside, and finding every crack and crevice of the human spirit to enter and erode. He wrote his experience of this loss and uh, his process of dealing with that grief in a small but very little powerful book called A Grace Disguised. I thoroughly recommend it. It was very powerful for me when my first wife died. This is what he says about Jesus' humanity and what it meant to him in dealing with that loss. The God I know has experienced pain and therefore understands my pain. The incarnation means that God cares so much that he chose to become human and suffer loss, though he never had to. I have grieved long and hard and intensely, but I have found comfort knowing that the sovereign God who is in control of everything is the same God who has experienced the pain I live with every day. No matter how deep the pit into which I descend, I keep finding God there. He's not aloof from my suffering, but draws near to me when I suffer. He is vulnerable to pain, quick to shed tears, and acquainted with grief. I wonder, will you, are you going to draw near to God, reveal your pain to him? I'm sure there's some of you here that have deep pain. Or are you just going to cut yourself off from him? Have you been doing that for years? I do it. I'm sure some of you do that as well. 
no doubt. Why? Why do you do that? Why have you not placed those burdens at the cross? I'm going to try and unpack that question. It's pride. Pride, pride says, I don't, I don't need God. The sin of pride, I actually think, is, is really, in many ways, the sin behind many other sins. And it's probably the most significant sin facing our church today. Manifests in all sorts of ways. Anger, judgmentalism, superficiality, defensiveness, arrogance, neglect. It'll kill you. Let's just pick on one, anger. I find this one interesting because Jerry Sitzer in his book talks about uh, when the trial came from the guy that was drunk and had the head-on collision, he actually got off on a technicality. They couldn't demonstrate that he was the one driving the vehicle and so he, in the end, wasn't convicted. Jerry talks about it taking him about two years to get past the anger of that event. The other thing that Jerry says he experienced was anger at God himself and dealing with the reality that through God's sovereignty, God had allowed this horrific event to take place. He almost gave up his faith, though he had many friends around him that pulled him back from the brink. So, what is it about anger? It is the one emotion that we feel. We don't want to stop feeling it, do we? Studies, in fact, have shown that it is the feeling we least want to give up. That's why when we hate being told to calm down when we're angry, isn't it? Have you ever had that feeling? We love our anger. It gives us power. It tells others not to mess with us because we mean business. We're tough, damn it. We get results. Don't F with me. What is it? It's that sense that things aren't how they should be, how I think they should be. I've, I've decided the way the world should be. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get results. I'm going to tell people how things should be. Subtly, I've put myself in God's place. I've decided what's right. I'm sitting in judgment. I'm going to get results. We don't want to lay down our fear. We, we cover it with anger. We don't want to deal with our sin. We don't want to be vulnerable to God. Anger is that protection, that insurance against being honest with God, isn't it? That's what it is. It's funny, though. The clinical research shows that anger actually doesn't get results. It turns people against us, makes them do either the opposite of what we want or, at the very least, the bare minimum. Kind of, we kind of curse people into doing what we want, but in the end, they're only doing it under duress. And they won't do it willingly again unless we use anger again to get the result that we want. Anger is just easier, isn't it? We'd rather rage than to pray. It's nothing like Christ, is it? He does the opposite. He has the power. He is God, but he gives it up. He empties himself. He becomes a servant. It's interesting. The one significant event that we think of with God, with Jesus and his anger is in the temple. It takes a lot for God to get angry in that event in Christ. But in us... Righteous anger is a very exotic creature, isn't it? I can't think of any occasion where I've been righteously anger, angry. So what do we do with our anger? What do we do with our pride? 
I could tell you to just work harder, couldn't I, to model yourself off Christ. And that, that is the right thing to do. Just be harder, be patient. Stop being angry. You can't. You're so caught up and patterns are relating. You have no way of finding your way out of the forest. You don't want to, do you? If you're really honest, you know you can't. You can't match Christ's humility, his patience, his kindness. There's only one thing to do. Just one thing. Look at the cross. Just look at it. Look at it. Your anger, my anger, it's up there. It's up there on that bloody tree. It's right there raging against God even now. Christ has dealt with it. You are free if you understand the cross of its power. You are free of the anger and the corrosion because you're forgiven. Let that forgiveness seep into your soul. Keep looking at the cross and remembering what Christ has done. That's the answer. That's what motivates us to godly living by understanding that, that our sin, that our anger and our frustration has already been de- dealt with on the cross. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus took on a human body to save our bodies. He took on a human mind to save our minds. Without becoming man in his emotions, there would have been no way that he could have saved our hearts, could he? And without taking a human will, he could not have saved our broken and wandering wills. As, a, as Gregory of Nazianza said, that which is not taken up has not been healed. He became man in full so that he might save us in full. It's truly marvellous, really. When you think about it, that's an incredible truth. Something that's really worth being reminded of in the coming of Christmas. He understands you, he understands me, and he sympathises. If only you'll let him. Amen.